Okay, good. So uh, I think there's more notes on the back if people don't have them. They're on the website. Um, continuing in the Lord's Prayer, we're at the, the passage which um, right now in all Bibles reads, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, or lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. But this last week, the Pope changed this one verse. Yeah, um, and here's the, here's the thing. Most Protestant theologians agree with him on this suggested change in that it shouldn't read, lead us not into temptation, but do not let us fall into temptation. And the premise is Jesus would never lead us in temptation and there's a lot of discussion over the original language in Greek and most scholars that I've read people I respect said that's probably is a better interpretation of that verse now whether or not all the Bibles are going to change it I don't know and just because I agree with this one line with the Pope doesn't mean I agree with all the other lines of the Pope so just so you know but I think when we understand temptation we understand who um, God is and how much he loves us his intention will never be to lead us into temptation. So we don't need to ask him not to lead us into temptation. However, it would be to our advantage to ask him to not let us fall into temptation. Or better translation would be to not let us give in to the temptations that are put before us. And basically all temptation, if you look at your own life, all temptation falls into one of two categories. It's either the desire for pleasure or the desire to avoid displeasure. And all temptation flows out of those two things if you think about it. Um, we are tempted to believe lies about ourselves that the enemy may worship or somebody else may say, but we're also tempted to lie to avoid the discomfort of the consequence of something we did or didn't do. You don't have to run away just because I asked you to come to breakfast next week. Okay. All right. But here's the reality. We live in a broken world. Um, nothing, it, it's, it's nothing like this finely tuned thing God did in the beginning. In the garden before Adam even fell, humanity is, is nowhere near that. Um, and the same can be said about us. We are broken and we are fallen. One of us not only experiences temptation, every one of us falls into temptation and many different categories. But here's the thing. There, there's a war in progress that's constant. And it's the war between Satan, the fallen prince, and God, the creator. And we, we are the reward of the battle. They're both contending for us. Satan is contending for us to keep us in bondage. And once we walk into the freedom of life we have in Christ, to then keep us feeling less than because of our weakness with regard to temptation or to convince people God doesn't exist, salvation is just a bunch of baloney, that uh, the church and Jesus and all that is. And so there's this constant battle. It's a non-ending battle, never-ending battle, and it's going on every day. And none of us can escape the, uh, the, the, the effects this spiritual warfare waged on us with regard to temptation. Every one of us encounters, if not daily, I can say safely weekly, Every one of us encounters temptation. Now, whether or not we give into it is, is a whole different discussion. But the enemy wants to keep us less than. He wants to keep us less than what God created us to be, or at least, and listen closely, to think we are less than. That's one of his greatest ploys, for us to believe a lie about ourselves, which prohibits us from being exactly who God made us to be. And if he can get us to doubt ourselves because of our wrestling with temptations, then he has won the battle. He doesn't need to destroy us. 
He just needs us to think we can't win. Let me say that again. Satan doesn't need to destroy us. He just needs us to believe we can't win the battle, and he just wants us to give up, say that's it. So we're unable to avoid traumas, and, and traumas lead scars. And uh, so fighting temptation is cooperation with God's grace. God does his part, and we do our part. We can't do what God can do, and God will not do what he intends for us to do. It's, it's this uh, mutuality. You know, Peter says this. Peter's kind of an expert on temptation, in case you don't know much about Peter. Um, but Peter says this, I beg you as pilgrims. You know what a pilgrim is? Yes, a pilgrim is a, is a journeyer, a sojourner, someone walking through life. I, I beg you as someone who's on a journey, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. And let's make it really clear right now that there is more than one fleshly lust. It seems like whenever we talk about lust, we automatically go to the sexual category, but there are all kinds of things. You can lust for food, which I have never done. Um, you can lust for any type of pleasure that will satisfy our flesh. That is what fleshly lust is. So what, what does our part include? When we are tempted, what does our part include? Number one, um, to make quality decisions to deny the temptation. In other words, to not embrace or participate in sin. To feed our spirit with the word of God and to ask for God's help through prayer and fasting. You know, uh, the, 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 the verse that is called upon many times in Romans 8, you know, where Paul bemoans, why is it the things I want to do I don't do and the things I don't want to do I do? And somehow we think that because that was me either, Paul would say, well, Paul couldn't beat it, so it's not expected of me either. You know, but if you read the whole scenario, Paul's real problem was pride. Paul said, the Lord told him, I sent the Spirit to buffet you because, Paul says, because I was getting too big-headed over all the revelation God was giving me. So God spent, sent the Spirit to buffet me to keep me humble. Now, what that is and how he humbled him, nobody knows. And you can read a hundred commentaries, and they will all come up with their own ideas. I have heard things that Paul was blind, that Paul was losing his hearing, that Paul had a problem with lust, that Paul was crippled, that Paul had arthritis. I mean, I've read all kinds of things. The bottom line is this. He, he did have a wife, <laughs> which is a wrestling sometimes. But... Paul says, whatever it was, it was sufficient to remind him, the spirit to buffet him, that he has a tendency to be prideful and to think all the revelation God gave him had something to do with him and was not simply God's grace upon him. And we need to embrace godly activities. You know, serving is a great way to stay out of trouble. Uh, relationships, fellowship, confessing our sin. This room, this community is, is an important part of staying out of trouble. I was reading a book this week, and, and it was written by a, a number of Christian pastors and psychologists talking about the, the isolationism that leads to people losing their joy. And, and they said, they had this revelation that the verse where we're called, the church is called to, to minister to widows, orphans, and strangers. And that the reality is most people who have no joy in their life have no community. That it's either because of distance. In other words, you were part of a community and you moved away or the community left you. A part of dysfunction, which people in the community are just messed up and you stay in a broken community, you will stay a broken person. Or death. A loved one dies, you know. It's, I've walked through that many times. Um, the loss of joy as you, as you wrestle through trying to figure out how am I going to live my life now that this part of my life has died. And so 
in all three of those instances, it is the lack of community that leads to isolation, and isolation leads to lack of joy, which could be depression or could be played out in anything. So part of our part to overcome temptation is accountability, is to live amongst a group of people, to share your life with them, to where there is an accountability, to where if you are struggling, you know, Paul says, confess your faults to one another, pray for one another. That, that type of relationship takes place. But here's God's part. As we do our part, God releases supernatural influence upon our life to help us overcome temptation. You know, he, he releases supernatural influence on our heart that's, that's demonstrated through power, through wisdom, through godly desires, um, on our body, through the power of healing, you know, whether it is supernatural, whether it's through life choices, whatever it is, but he gives us power to overcome it. And our circumstances, provision, protection, direction, relationships, that's the part God plays in us walking in this partnership of grace to overcome temptation. So the, the war temptation has two battlefronts. There's the war that takes, side, takes place inside of us, and there's the war that takes place outside our heart. Who surrounds us? What surrounds us as well? It's what's going on internally. And we are able to see in our life and other people's lives the thing that takes place on the outside. We can see, you know, if you've raised children, you can, you can watch what happens when they're tempted to do something they shouldn't do. You, you can watch outwardly and see the struggle. But there's also a struggle that takes place in each one of our hearts that the only one who sees it is us. God, the Holy Spirit, and the enemy. And so this war on the inside is our personal battle with sinful desires for pleasure. And desiring pleasure is not sin. Sinful pleasure is sin. We were designed. God made us to desire pleasure. We, we need to embrace that. We need to own that. It's okay for me to desire pleasure. But living in the exhilaration of God's pleasures is far more satisfying and far more exhilarating than the pleasures of this world. And what God has put in our heart, the, the desire for pleasures God has put in us that are good pleasures, that, that we should, through his word and through prayer and through fasting, pursue with all our heart uh, the desire for the assurance that God enjoys us. That's a good desire because God does enjoy us. And also the desire to be fascinated with him and his creation. It's okay to be, I mean, there are sunsets that just blow your mind. It's okay to be fascinated by that. You know, um, the, the desire to be beautiful. God put that within us. David said he wanted to behold the beauty of God. God put within us the desire to be beautiful and the desire to be great. Not, not to have power, but to be great and to be great in his name, in his image. The desire for intimacy without shame. To, to experience true intimacy and not be ashamed of it. And at the same time, to be wholehearted and to be passionate toward God and toward people and toward life itself. And also the desire to be significant, to have a lasting impact. Every one of us was made to have one impact that nobody else can have. And it may be on one person, it may be on thousands of persons or people. I'm always drawn um, to two scenes uh, in the movie Saving Private Ryan. And if you haven't seen the movie, just bear with me. But it's when the captain has been shot and is dying, the captain played by Tom Hanks. And he grabs Private Ryan by the shirt and pulls him close. And he says to him, make this count. All these men who lost their lives to bring you home because your brothers died, make this count. And then it goes to the scene of the graveyard of this older man walking towards the grave and he comes up to the tombstone of the captain and he begins to cry and he asks his grandchildren and his children, did my life count? Did my life make a difference? That's, that's our call and our destiny. 
Everybody wants to be significant. Everybody wants to have a lasting impact. And we need to make sure our life counts for whatever little part of humanity and history God has entrusted to us. And so, and, and God put that desire in us. It's okay to desire that because if we don't desire that, we will not pursue our purpose. If we don't desire to be significant, if we don't desire to have a lasting impact, we won't try to be significant. We won't try to have an impact on people, on life, on community. When we're dead and gone, what remains? The significant impact for good or for bad that we had on community, that we had on a city, that we had on one person's life. So, and while many acknowledge there is a war going on inside, most people do not fear. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not flesh and blood, but they're mighty through our God to the daring, tearing down of strongholds. You see, God has entrusted weapons to us. That's why Paul tells us also to put on our spiritual armament in Romans 8, to make sure, I mean, in, in Ephesians 4, Six, to make sure we put on our spiritual armor to fight these spiritual battles. But Paul says this when he writes to the Romans. For I delight in the law, the word of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law, a principle in my members, my, my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Paul says he recognized there's a battle in my heart that is manifest in my flesh if I surrender to it. He also says, James, the brother of Jesus says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure and war in your members? So that's the war that takes place inside our heart. The war outside our heart is seeking the release of God's justice. You know, in healing the sick, in righteous government, in winning the lost, um, everything where God's hand is involved, where, where there is a, a, a thread, a remnant of righteousness, whether it's in government, whether it's in the church praying for the sick, whether it's in sharing the gospel with the lost. There is a release of God's justice in each one of those. That's the war that takes place on the outside. And scripture speaks of lust warring in our members and it includes our mind, our emotion, our, our physical appetites. And, and lust has a lot of expressions. And these aren't my definitions. These are what the Bible says the expressions of lust are. Jesus' words in Mark 7, thefts, Covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Paul, when he writes to the church of Galatia, says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All of these are manifest in our life by giving into temptation. They are, in essence, the temptations that the enemy fires at us. When, when Paul says, I carry the shield of faith, which is the word of God, to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one, the darts the enemy fires at us are temptation. You overcome, tem overcome temptation by the word of God. Jesus gives us that example in the wilderness. Every time the enemy fired an arrow of temptation, at Jesus, after fasting water and food for 40 days, Jesus' response was scripture. 
He quenched the fiery darts of the devil, the temptation. You don't think Jesus wasn't thinking about turning stones to bread? You, you don't think he wasn't that hungry after 40 days? But he overcame the temptation, not as God, but as man. And he overcame those temptations as man by declaring the word of God. So our war with temptation is difficult. Narrow is the gate, difficult is the way to life, and there are few who find it. It is by overcoming temptation, by resisting the devil, that we find our way. And without this understanding, we become easily offended with God when difficult situations come in and we fail. Because our yoke of intimacy with Jesus is easy. Jesus says it. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. God freely provides what we could never earn or produce and far outweighs what we deserve. So when God gives us forgiveness, the strength to live and rewards now and in the age to come, when he gives us forgiveness, we benefit now and we benefit in eternity. But listen to what Paul says. He says in, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but that the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. We receive his favor forever as we will rule with him eternally in the universe. God treats us with gentleness with, by his grace and doesn't give us what we deserve. So we need to learn that denying our flesh um, in the arena God chooses to express our love to him. Jesus says this, he who has my commandments and keeps them it is he who loves me. Each of us has different struggles. My struggles are not your struggles. Your struggles are not my struggles. Um, it's according to personality, according to circumstances. My wife, blessed her heart, can sit on the freeway in traffic forever and just not be bothered at all. That's a sickness. Um, I am in traffic for two minutes, and I give in to temptation really quickly. In fact, there are times I wish I was driving like a 1952 whatever that was already banged up, so if I hit somebody, it wouldn't matter. Um, but that, that is a true struggle with me. My, my wife will tell you, my whole personality changes when I get stuck in traffic too long. But God called me to the land of traffic, so I need to find joy in the midst of it. And so, what's that? Yeah, that's even a greater struggle. Um, so we all have a different assignment, you know, and... And in that assignment, as we walk in it, we're basically offering our gift of love to God. We, we're obeying what he's called us to do. We're obeying who he's called us to be. And so saying no to the temptation provides us with the opportunity to express the love of God. To graciously allow that person to cut me off and say, God bless you, instead of what I'm really thinking is, is, it is an opportunity. I'm not saying that tongue-in-cheek. It is an opportunity for me to walk in grace and to not be offended. And it is an opportunity that I fail often. So um, it, I believe God finds joy when we personally resist the temptation to be human and embrace the temptation to be his sons and daughters, the invitation. And so th there are boundaries that we need to set that allows us to refuse those things that inflame sin in us, what, whatever it is. And, and I want to make you think that the only problem I have is traffic. That's, that's the least of my problems. Um, but, but we're not to present our bodies, we're not to present our life, our members, as an instrument of sin. We're not to say, here, use me 
to do this whatever. Here's what Paul says. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. And this happens when we put ourselves in circumstances that stirs up lust. That desire for me to lose my anger with that person on the road is lust. It's a lust to win. It's a, it's a lust for dominance. It's a lust to be first. It's a lust to try and rationally figure out why if everybody just didn't drive at the same speed, there wouldn't be a traffic jam. But beyond that, we have to refuse to be in relationships or places that entice us to do, to give in to temptation. In other words, you, you don't take an alcoholic to the liquor store. You know, you don't take a drug addict to Oregon. If you've been to Oregon lately, you'll know what I mean. There's more cannabis shops on the corners than there are grocery stores and gas stations. They are everywhere. Um, but too many that are big of deal, but ultimately lead to sin. And, and a lot of people are surprised when they sin because they thought they could go into a circumstance and they would have the strength to say no to whatever that temptation is. And, and that's really a naivety on our part. You know, the, the, the one verse that says, says it all says, flee youthful lusts. It doesn't say, walk into them and see how strong you are. It doesn't say, let's see how spiritual you are, walk, confront this lust, and let's see if you can overcome it. I, I guarantee you, you'll lose 99.9999% of the time. You might, the enemy might let you in once to let you be naive enough to embrace you, to entice you to do it again. But Jesus taught us that we have to make hard decisions. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, and we've already talked about this, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right, eye cause, right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It's more profitable for you to be that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So breaking off relationships or refusing to go places that result in sinning being stirred up in our lives. That's what it means to pluck out the eye or cut off the hand. Um, he's not literally saying, go get a stick and poke out your eye. He's saying, don't let your eye be in the places it's going to be that's going to entice you less. Don't let your hands be doing things that are going to entice you and cause you to sin. It's better for you to not go to that place at all than to be pulled in. And so, you know, people, Paul says this, we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all his good pleasure of his goodness, all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. So we God approves of those who have a record of being faithful and consistently war against what tempts us. God knows that we're not going to win every temptation. That's why grace has been enacted. If, if, if God knew that we are strong enough to overcome temptation, grace would never have to be on the table. Jesus would never have had to die. But God knew from the beginning with Adam and Eve, one simple little thing, everything in this garden is yours. Just one thing isn't. That tree right there. Just don't eat of that fruit. And the enemy knows. He didn't need to talk about anything else in that garden but the one thing that they weren't supposed to have. And that's how he works in your life. He doesn't look for your strength. He looks for the crack in your armor. He looks for that place where he can just whisper, shoot that little dart, give you that little enticement. God knows those moments are going to come, and God knows that if we walk with him, that we stay in his word, that we carry our spiritual armament, that many, many times we will overcome and resist, but there will be times we'll be ill-prepared or caught off guard because the way we live life and we're going to fall and therefore grace is enacted. And I'll talk about that more in a moment. But here's, I just want to walk you through the six stages. And there, these are my six stages, so there might be more. The six stages of temptation. Okay. Um, number one, 
It's the stirring of lustful desire. And again, lust could be anything. It could be the desire to lie to somebody because you don't want to suffer the consequences of the truth. It could be the desire to steal something. It could be the desire to gossip. It could be the desire to um, cheat on a spouse. It could be the desire to steal. There's all kinds of lusts. That's anything that entices us. So, number one, being drawn away by lustful desires occurs when our imagination is stirred. Paul tells us to pull down every vain imagination, to bring it under the authority of Jesus. Um, and it begins when we casually think that we can walk away from lustful action, including pride, anger, covetousness, immorality, drunkenness, indulgences. It, I don't have to tell you. As I'm talking about this, you're all going, I know what mine is. You know, Satan wants our fleeting thoughts of enticement to become sustained thoughts, to become fantasy. I, I, I know of a circumstance very close to a, to a friend where a person squandered their job, um, their savings, their spouse's savings, um, buying lottery tickets, being convinced that the next one was going to be the winner and would make up for everything else. And I mean, so much for, that there had to be multiple family interventions, so much to where it, it ruined a marriage, to where the spouse had to go and take, she, she didn't feel it was grounds for divorce biblically, um, but she took his name off everything. And he just risked, you take a thought from her. That's what happens when you get enticed, you take a thought, and that thought tells you that if you give in, the outcome is going to be a great, great amount of pleasure, like wearing a crown. Um, but it's not true. I've seen, and, and lottery tickets just won. And, it, and, it, and when the lottery tickets weren't working, then it became horses. Then it became online gambling. And that's just as enticing, just as seductive as online pornography. It destroyed a life. It depleted all their money. And, and the, the lie, the temptation was, this ticket's going to be the winning ticket, and you're going to have more money when it's done than you did when you started. And the joy of the enemy when it was all said and done is they had no money. Relationships were broken. Community was broken. And lives were changed. And thoughts about people were changed forever. And that's, that's what happens when we give in. So stage one is the easiest one to resist. When the thought, the Bible says bringing every thought captive under the authority of Jesus, that's stage one. Just take that thought, bring it captive, give it to the Lord and say no. Say, stage two is when you take that thought and you sustain that thought and you begin to ponder upon it and it becomes an imagination, a vain imagination. It becomes enticed with, and, and I put covetousness next to lust because they're basically the same words. The only reason I do that is because every time you say lust, people think sex. I'm talking about covetousness, desiring something that God does not intend for you to have, that you think is going to be, listen closely, is going to be a greater pleasure than the pleasure Jesus has to offer. So our momentary fleeting covetousness escalate to sustained thoughts. We're then captured in fantasy by continuing to imagine these activities. And our imagination is energized by demonic power. The more we open the door, the more the enemy is going to lie to you and is going to enhance enhance the pleasure or the presumed pleasure that's going to come from giving into the temptation. So now we're in the midst of the storm of temptation. It's a lot harder now to say no than it was at stage one. Once you've taken the thought and you've made it your thought and you've begun to imagine what the outcome is going to be, it's a lot harder to say, no, 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 I can't do that. Stage three is the decision to give in to the temptation or better put, the decision to sin. Covetousness, lustful desire is conceived 
when we make the decision to walk out the sinful action. And again, sin is anything that disobeys what God has called us to do, anything that contradicts God's word. Sin is anything that the Lord speaks to our heart to do. If the Lord tells you not to watch television, it doesn't mean television is a sin for everybody else. He's told you not to watch it for whatever reason. He's told you not to look at screens for a day. And, and you choose to anyway. He's not telling you that screens are bad for everyone. He's telling you today, I don't want you to look at screens. It's, it's that discussion. All of a sudden, there's your phone, or there's your computer, or your iPad, or your television. All of a sudden, well, that bomb just did go off. I, I just need to see what the story's about. Just those little things. That's no different than, than the temptation to go look um, at pornography, or the temptation to go lie, or the temptation to eat when you're fasting, whatever it is. Once you give in, James uses the analogy of a baby and our sinful behavior to become alive. A child is alive at conception. We believe that. Okay? And yet, it's not seen. We believe at conception the child's alive, even though we can't see it. A newly conceived act of sin is alive, yet it's still not seen by others when we purpose in our heart that we're going to do it, whatever it is. So number three is the decision to sin. Number four is to act upon that decision. So lustful desire gives birth to sin, and it's acted out, however we act that out. At the time of birth, a baby comes forth, um, so that all of a sudden we know it's a boy or a girl. We know how many fingers and toes it has. We know what it looks like. All of the features of the birth of that baby are made known at birth. All of the manifestation of the results of sin will be noticed the moment we act upon it, the moment we begin to do what we shouldn't be doing. Lust gives birth to action. Specific features of our lust are now openly manifest not only to ourselves, but to God and everybody. And when we act out on sin, we give Satan a legal door to enter in and to keep us in bondage to walk in that sin until we come to Jesus and close the door. Step five is sinful addiction. And this is for the person that instead of going to community, when Paul says to confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed, it wasn't to shame us. It wasn't so that we could stand and go, look at what a worm or what a wretched. It was for the sake of community building us up and being eyes and hands for us when our eyes and our hands are weak. To confess your faults, to come and to say, hey, Jill, whenever we're in a group, I have a tendency to say things that I shouldn't say. I have a tendency to gossip about other people. So I'm just asking, we're in a group, if I start to do it, you know, well, can we have a word like purple elephant or, you know, or you can kick me in the shin or whatever it is. But as part of community, can you be a part of my eyes and my hands to help me not to give in the temptation to want to tell some juicy tidbit about somebody? That's, that's what Paul means when he says confess our faults to one another and pray for one another and may be healed. And so when we go to the sinful addiction, it goes on and becomes full grown until we repent. And that's the great part about repentance. That's the great part about God saying our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more. But we have to come to him in true repentance. Repentance means to change, to turn around, to switch direction. We have to come in that. Paul says that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt. And again, Confession to deceitful lust. You have to put it off. And you put it off, and, and, and again, confess your faults to one another. It's not just confessing to God, but it's after you confess to God, and then you go and you say, okay, Jill, I've had a real problem with gossip, and I, I went to the Lord with the Lord, and I've confessed, and I've asked forgiveness, but I really need your help on this too. I've asked the Lord to help me, but I, you know what? I need you to be the one here to knock me upside the head if it starts to happen. That's the importance of what's in this room. That's the importance of community. You cannot, no man is an island. I know that's a cliche, but you cannot 
every time resist temptation on your own. You, you need to have someone who comes alongside. Iron sharpens iron. You know, Scripture says there is a friend who is closer than a brother. And so we need to, you know, when our conscience is weakened, when we are, are wounded and dulled by sinful actions, um, we get more comfortable with our sin. But we need to come to somebody to help us because if we don't, sometimes we can't avoid the consequences of sin if we stop it soon enough. I mean, there's always the consequence of self-harm and broken relationship with God. But there's also the consequence, if you continue to gossip, pretty soon you're going to be known as a gossiper and nobody's going to want to be your friend anymore. Nobody's going to tell you anything anymore. Nobody's going to trust you anymore. And that's the consequence of sin, which is stage six. Sin brings forth death, which is loss, pain, or shame. For the wages of sin is death. So sinful actions progressively destroy our life as we reap more and more of the negative consequences. So we have two choices when it comes to temptation. We can die involuntarily or we can die voluntarily. If we die involuntarily, it's because we yielded it to it and now reap the shame and painful consequences of giving in temptation. But if we die to temptation willingly, voluntarily, it lures us away in righteousness. If we die voluntarily to sin by denying it, then we receive a great reward. Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There is a reward. There is a reward for forsaking the pleasure of sin and embracing the promise of Christ. Which brings me, I think, to the most important part about temptation. You see, I think temptation is like step seven or eight. If we could understand steps one through six, seven and eight would become less and less um, evident in our life. And that is the habit of grace. And when I say the habit of grace, it's enjoying Jesus through spiritual disciplines. If, if you want to overcome temptation, you have to have something that is more enticing and more pleasurable than that which you're being tempted to participate in. You have to believe that your relationship with Jesus, the pleasure you have in the presence of the Lord, um, are pleasures evermore pleasures we have to believe that the pleasure of jesus is greater than any pleasure we're going to give into in temptation but if we haven't walked in that if we haven't diligently made the pleasure of jesus a priority in our life we're going to be more easily enticed to the pleasures of sin more easily giving into temptation habits correspond to disciplines Grace corresponds habits. Grace habits, say spiritual disciplines, it's spiritual habits, grace habits, and enjoying Jesus is the hinge that swings the door. So I believe there are three pretty unremarkable things that shape and strengthen our Christian life. And I've already mentioned them in the message. Number one is listening to God's voice. The voice of the Holy Spirit. The one that says, don't do that, don't say that, don't go there. Number one, listening to God's voice. Number two, speaking to him in prayer. Having a conversation with him about the temptation. And number three, joining together with people, with his people as the church. In other words, community. So listening to God, talking to God, and being a part of community. We need to have those three steps in place before we ever encounter temptation because if those are in place, temptation becomes easier to overcome. So the everyday habit of grace we cultivate and gives us the power to resist temptation. We can't earn God's grace. Jesus 
bought it all. There's nothing to earn. It's already paid for. Um, but we have to <clears throat> position ourselves to receive it and to walk in it. So I said the key is to enjoy Jesus. Jesus is the greatest pleasure. And, and that, that should not be, even now as I say that, there should be a yes and an amen just jumping up in your heart. If you're not at the place where Jesus is the greatest pleasure of your life, and I'm not saying that as some sort of Christianese or spiritual jargon. If, if your best friend is not Jesus, if, if your best conversations and your greatest joy is not being with him, then you are going to be more prone to fall into temptation because you are going to be convinced by the enemy that there are pleasures that are more um, enticing than the pleasure of already having relationship with Jesus. If you enjoy Jesus more than life, you will live with radical abandonment for Jesus that's going to make the world wonder, what does they, what does he have that I don't have? Why are they on top of it and I'm not? Jesus says this, again, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. The enjoyment of Jesus is not the icing on the cake. To me, the enjoyment of Jesus is the uranium inside of the nuclear bomb. It's what causes the explosion. It's not the after effect of the explosion. So, you know, not in only enjoying Jesus' explosive, transforming way in the way we live, it's essential for making Jesus look great to us, which is what the Holy Spirit's job is, by the way. If you're not talking, you know, I, I preached on this years ago. The Bible says we're to pray with the Spirit and to pray in the Spirit, okay? If we're not praying with the Spirit, then we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to do what Jesus sent him to do. He, he gave us the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit could glorify God. To glorify God in our life. John 16, 14. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So you need to have relationship and conversation with the Holy Spirit because he's going to glorify Jesus inside of you. And it's the Holy Spirit who is going to quicken you to understand and fully embrace and, and participate in this joy of Jesus that is greater than any enticement the world has to offer, than any pleasure the world has to offer. Jesus, he, by his grace and by his Holy Spirit, doesn't leave us to ourselves when it comes to enjoying Jesus. He doesn't say, okay, enjoy me, now figure it out. I command you, enjoy me, but you got to figure out how to do it. He, he helps us. You know, he doesn't say, everybody knows Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. He doesn't say delight yourself in the Lord and then stand back and see if we can, you know, enjoy him. He, he, he says, he doesn't, he makes a covenant. He says, I will put, this is Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. God, when we accept Christ as Savior, God has put the Holy Spirit in us at salvation to give us the revelation of the glory of God as the pathway to know the pleasures of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's inside of us, always waiting to glorify God if we'll only say, Holy Spirit, I want to glorify God in my life today. Will you be the voice that speaks to me? Will you direct my path? Will you help me the decisions I make? Will you help me overcome lust? Will you help me have so much of the pleasure of Jesus in me that people want to say, I want what he has, I want what she has. He makes a covenant, I'll put my spirit in you. He causes, he says, delight yourself in the Lord. He causes what he commands. He says, I'm not just telling you to figure it out. I've already given you what you need to do it. Just access what you already have. Use to your advantage what I've already given to you. Use the Holy Spirit inside of your heart. Walk in the spirit you know, walk with the Spirit and allow Him to enlighten you 
to the greatest of all pleasures. The greatest show on earth is Jesus. The greatest pleasure in heaven and earth is Jesus. And if you find yourself stumbling every day because you're pursuing something to fulfill you, you're pursuing pleasures that haven't satisfied you, I simply want to tell you, get back to Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus within you because God said he's already put him there to do that. Let him do what he's been put inside of you to do by salvation. It is this, it, it comes through spiritual habits and discipline. You know him by reading his word. You know him by praying. And again, prayer is a conversation. I don't know, and it took me years to learn this. I'm not just saying this to some guy who's got it all figured out. But I don't know how I would walk out my day if I didn't have a conversation with Jesus at the beginning of my day. And when I say a conversation, you know, I journal and I write down what's on my heart today, what I've been praying for, what's before me. But then I just sit and I listen, and then I write down what he says back. And if I didn't have that written down there to read and to know he's talking to me, that he loves me, that he has a plan, I don't know how I'd make it through a day. He is the greatest pleasure. Grace-empowered habits, spirit-empowered disciplines, these are the means that God has given us to deal with temptation. If you want to overcome temptation, you have to ask yourself, do I have grace-empowered habits in my life? Do I have habits of fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit daily? Do I have habits of feeding upon the Word of God daily? Do I have habits of praying over things God puts in my heart, over things people ask me to pray daily. If those are not spiritual disciplines, if those are not spiritual habits, then we will not be empowered as disciples of Christ because we will begin our day and we'll take the Holy Spirit and put him on the shelf and say, I'll come get you later. Not payments. Grace and spiritual disciplines are not payments for pleasure. In other words, you're not doing these to put a down payment and think you're going to get pleasure back. They are the pipeline. So what's the difference? A pipeline means it's already flowing. There's nothing we have to do to cause the flow. All we have to do is contain the flow. And when we have spiritual disciplines, we are not making some sort of down payment for God to pour pleasure on us, we are creating pipelines in our heart that allow the flow of the Holy Spirit, the river of the love of God, the revelation of the Holy Spirit to flow through us. It's just waiting to flow. It's looking for a pipeline to flow through. Psalm 36, 8. You give them drink from the river of your delights. The river of God's delights are waiting to flow through you if you would just build pipelines. And you build pipelines by grace-empowered habits, by spirit-empowered disciplines. And understand, grace-empowered habits are habits that, by God's grace, they equip us to overcome the enticement to sin. And spiritual-empowered disciplines equip us to stand not only against them, but to be an example to others as the glory of God flows through us by the Holy Spirit. Now look it. I believe I have a pipeline flowing through me, but I believe we all leak. I believe there are times that the water doesn't get where it needs to go because I've got a hole in the pipe somewhere and it's just gone off someplace else and missed the spot. And when that happens, we need inspiration and instruction on, on how to go and to drink again and to drink again, and it needs to be a habit. See, here's, here's the thing. I know when the water's not flowing. How do I know? Because I know what it feels like when the water is flowing. When you encounter temptation, the first thing you need to see is, is the pipeline flowing. Did I spend time with God today? 
Did I share my day with him? Did I ask him what's on his agenda for me today? Did I ask him, God, as your kingdom comes and your will is done in my life, bring me to the place where you are, to heaven. Let me see as heaven sees. Let me do as heaven does. And, 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 and just let me live my life in a way that glorifies you. You'll find when you live a life that glorifies God, you give in to less temptation. And, and I, have, I have a premise. Not only I believe you give in to less temptation, I believe you're tempted less because the enemy gives up. The enemy just looks for easy targets. He, he's, he's a lazy guy. He doesn't want to work hard. He wants to go after the people he knows that he can suck in and just keep them in bondage. I want to be somebody that the devil doesn't want to waste his time on. And I can only do that by grace-empowered, grace-empowered habit and spirit-empowered disciplines. Read your Bible. Talk to God, however you want to do it. You don't have to journal. I just think, for me, journaling is incredible. But all of that summed together is how we overcome temptation. And so when Jesus said, pray this, according to the Pope, and do not let me fall into temptation today. Deliver me from the evil one. I'm going to tell you, if Jesus is your pleasure, that prayer is going to be more active in your life if he, if, than if he's not. And so every day, that's why Paul says, every day, put on your armor. I do. Every day, I've, got, I've even drawn little pictures. I pray the same prayer every day. I'm not creative. It works. So I just pray the same one every day. I've got something written down for each one of those pieces of armor, and I pray the same exact stinking thing every morning. Why? Because it works. God doesn't need me to change my vocabulary to make it work today because he doesn't want to hear the same thing I said yesterday. He's happy that I show up. He's happy that I remember I have armor. He's happy that I'm asking him as I put it on to empower it as I walk out my day. And, and just know, I'm still a knucklehead. I may put it all on in the morning, but somewhere along the day, I take it off and forget to put it on again. But that's all part of the journey. But Jesus knew that there was no way on earth that we would be able to overcome temptation if we didn't have his help. He knew it. If we didn't have his grace, if we didn't have armament, and if he was not our greatest pleasure. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we thank you that you are the pleasure above all pleasures. And God, <clears throat> I pray that each one of us would be at the place where we could say that without feeling like it's a cliche. The same way as I watched new moms look at their babies for the first time or even as the months go on there is no way that when they say she takes or he takes my breath away that they're just speaking out of cliche because they've experienced it they've experienced motherhood they've experienced birth they've experienced the joy of life it's the very same thing god when we say jesus you're our greatest pleasure it's not a cliche. It's that which has been birthed in us, which flows through us by the Holy Spirit as you are glorified and we are empowered because we love you more than we love life itself. And you said that's what it takes to follow you. We have to pick up our cross. We have to deny ourselves to follow you. So I pray, God, that we will be armor bearers who carry their cross, who are known by the prince of darkness for the strength of our resistance because we walk in the Spirit and because we find greater pleasure in Jesus than anything he could tempt us with. May that be our prayer. May that be our life. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Don't forget prayer Wednesday nights. Come on down. And if you like loud long worship you can come friday nights you can sit on the patio and enjoy it um you'll hear it yes it's interesting 
how musicians and how DJs view sound. We're musicians. The Friday Night Pastor is a DJ. So you just figure that out. All right. So don't forget, next Sunday, brunch. I'll send an email out to remind you. And uh, don't forget, next Sunday night, night of worship and prayer at Redeemed Life, 7 o'clock. And I'll just tell you one other thing in advance. I 